the hell's this? A siesta? What? I wasn't sleeping. I was resting my hips. Hey, friends. You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. Today it's you, me, Mo, and Joe circling this 10th episode of season six of The Sopranos on a Lionel. This one was written by Matthew Weiner and directed by Steve Schill, a British TV and film director. Did rounds at most of the major HBO shows. Rome, Carnival, Deadwood, Big Love, The Wire. This episode originally aired on May 14th, 2006, same month and year I first moved to New York. HBO synopsis, Tony leverages Johnny's misfortune into a domestic upgrade. Bacala suffers vision impairment. Melfi pushes Tony to delve deeper into his past with Janice. Vito's attempt to make a go of it as a handyman fails, sending him back to New Jersey. Meanwhile, a shocking announcement comes out regarding Johnny's court case. The title, of course, a reference to a couple of blue-collar guys that found their way into Lionel's lineup one year. A nod likely to Vito's role testing out life as a blue-collar construction worker himself. A real worker, not one of those no-show, no-work types. And of course, his relationship with Jim. The most interesting origin story of the name comes from Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing, where the character played by Frank Vincent says the line, Mo and Joe, when explaining to the cops what happened to his car. Whatever happened there? We open on a Sal Vitro landscaping truck. Parked outside the Soprano residence, snow on the ground, Tony coming down the driveway for the first time this season in his robe to pick up the paper. Our North Star of normalcy in this show. Sal's enjoying a morning snack when he notices tea and walks over. Says he tented the bulbs. I imagine that's something to do with preserving the flowers through winter. But what am I, a botanist now? Tea's more focused on his paper than Sal. Can sense there's an ask in the offing. Can always sense the ask. One of the key qualities of being number one. To show it, he hands him the plastic wrap on the paper without thinking twice about it. And he's right. Sal wants to know if he can stop doing the sacrimony's place. Recall the deal that got made back during the Feech era. I believe the third episode of season five. Where's Johnny? How much longer do I have to keep doing this on the arm, he asks. First time I heard that expression was in Donnie Brasco. It means free of charge. I believe there's supposed to be a coinciding hand gesture of brushing your left arm with your right hand to indicate, don't worry about it. T says, short fucking memory, eh? Have you forgotten what he did for you in the Feech thing? But that's the rub, right? Salvitro was a sacrificial pawn in all of this. Actually, he wasn't even supposed to be on the chessboard. He just existed. That was his crime. T calls him a selfish prick. 
with her husband in a jail cell? Said the same way Carmela said to Hugh, with my husband in a coma? The sacrimonies could use you the most right now. Sal walks away, defeated. His resignation is legendary. Worse than the home team down 30, going into the fourth. And the yellow plastic wrap he's carrying is like a flag of surrender. I know, those are supposed to be white, so don't get cute now. My point, he went for an ask, tried to stand up for himself, and all he has to show for it is a handful of Tony's trash. Cut to Johnny Sack and his lawyer. We learn that a trial is imminent. The feds have finished a complete accounting of Johnny Sack's net worth. The lawyer slides over the paper. The vintage Wurlitzer? He's irked by the toothbrush-level scrutiny of his assets. That, of course, refers to the instrument company most famous for its organs and pianos. Their organs are still in some of the most legendary venues across America. Sadly, venues that have been pretty much empty for a whole year. The Beacon Theater in New York City, the Fox Theater in Detroit, the Orpheum in Vancouver, Paramount in Seattle, Radio City Music Hall, and countless others. Back to the accounting. 180K in Boca, under his father's name, tracked. The estimate came in around 5 million. Think he was hurt by that number or happy? Well, Ginny lives on scraps. Here's the lawyer's breakdown. Cash, portfolios with Fidelity and Vanguard, 401k, and a severance parachute, a.k.a. golden parachute, from Essany Scaffolding. No doubt, his version of Barone Sanitation. A condo in Deal Beach at 450k. Good price. Note the way Johnny Sack looks up right there, doing his best version of Salvitro right before him. Deal Beach is a conservative stretch of the Jersey Shore, just above Asbury Park. The Maserati, Ginny's Yukon, the house, and stuff inside it, $1.2 million. Johnny Sack wonders aloud if this is all part of a plan to get him to hang himself. But the lawyer's MO is simple cooperate. Johnny Sack's response? A soundbite for the ages. Flip. Let me explain something to you again, Ron. But differently. Being a rat, where I'm coming from? That's like asking the person where you're coming from to become a fucking Nazi. Ron rejoices. Says he doesn't rep turncoats anyway. Great effective way to de-escalate that exchange. Love that. But Johnny Sack with the last word, as always, because it would kill your practice. Looks down as he says it. But then throws a quick glance up to see how it landed. Speaking of killing things, cut to Janice. Getting into it with the staff at Satrial's. Love that we see this from the outside looking in through the window. That's all we need, right? She walks in to see Tony in the back. Never seen her, let alone a civilian, just walk in like that. Her beef is a stuffed pork loin. And with Christmas coming up, I wondered, 
What is it one stuffs in a spiraled pork loin? Betty Crocker over here has got some suggestions for you. Panko, Parmesan, melted butter, herbs, spices, and celery. Imagine, if you will, a visual of me pinching my cheek like Vito right there. Tony, who is in the middle of looking at porn, not pork, asks if she's ever heard a knocking. This as he tucks the magazine under a clipboard of papers. You know, for the kid. Also, perhaps a nice throwback moment between the two of them, as she acted like that wasn't the first time she's walked in on that. It was a special order, she says. But evidently, he had it sent up to Carmela. Tony says you get what you pay for, meaning she pays for nothing, so she gets nothing. Coded messaging that fuels this whole episode. That dig, as he greets his niece, says she's her little twin. Bacala's got no fucking genes at all. Always the butt of jokes. Even in front of his own daughter. The fine line between breaking balls and outright emasculation. As any steadfast and loyal wife would, she defends him. You never miss a chance to shit on him, do you? Then she goes for the jugular. I don't know why you just can't admit that you blame us that you got shot. Lot of truth there. I think we all kind of do. Had Bobby been in his position on the field, none of this would have happened. What's the patriot way we heard about for so many seasons and decades even? Do your job. I'm disproportionately heavy on the NFL references today. But basketball's coming back soon. Tony reflects for a beat. I have only myself to blame. Says it twice. Janice gives a look like she's off the hook. Some kind of weight has been released from her. But it doesn't last long. She doesn't reciprocate his calm self-awareness. She screams. You don't blame me for the shooting? Well, you fucking blame me for something. Yeah, the baby. Looming over him. Marrying the boss's sister is usually a step up. But you punish Bobby because he's my husband. To be his age and not be a captain. But didn't he run Junior's crew ever since Murph? Season two? Tony's eyes widen. So that's what this visit is about. She continues. Instead, merciless ridicule. She brings up the railroads. He's a grown man! Oh, but it's okay for Neil Young. He owns Lionel! Now, that's a great story unto itself. He does currently own 20% of the business. David Letterman got really into Lionel trains with his son, and he talked about it with Neil once when he was a guest. Uh, my son and I, over the years, have become uh, deeply fascinated and uh, addicted to and fond of Lionel trains. Oh, yeah. And every time uh, Santa brings us something, uh, Santa will say, you know, Neil Young owns Lionel. Uh, <laughs> Is that well, true? No. I, I, have, I have a very small part of a very big Well, thing. what is the story there? What is the connection? You put them back on their feet somehow? No, I just, uh, you know, I, 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 I developed a model train control system for Lionel and, and the sound systems, because I basically made this for my kid. For my son Ben, who's a, a 
he, he's in a wheelchair and he uses a switch to run this thing. So I, I created this way of running the trains for him so he could do it with his little switch and it duplicates anything that you put on the controller. So we made a digital control system to do it with. And, and, and the, that how, that's how it creates the, the train, the authentic train sounds yeah, that yeah. you get now? Yeah, we record oh. the sounds and then we, uh, you know, the algorithms uh, that uh, we developed the algorithms that mimic the way the sounds sound when the train moves, yeah. you know? Wow, that, that's tremendous. It's because... pretty... So Janice, she pleads the best way she knows how. I cried for you. I sat with you. He softens, but then throws a curve with all kinds of action on it. I appreciated it, he says. She thinks she's going to get hers here. But we both know, no matter how much I gave, you'd still be here fucking complaining. Mic drop. She says there's nothing holding them together but DNA. But clearly even that's not enough. Theirs is a double helix with weak bonds. Watson and Crick over here. He smiles. He's proud of himself as she storms out. As we hear the sounds of saws carving up meat. Great touch after what just happened. They're severed bad, and it's getting worse. That every day is a gift thing ran its course real fast with her. Speaking of severed relations, cut to Vito. On the phone, something about slot machines, then single-deck blackjack. He looking for a game? Or is he trying to set one up in town? Run that bad boy out of the B&B. A book of motorbikes is splayed out on the table. You know, research. He's also doodling on a notepad while he talks. Hard to tell what. Eyes coming out of skulls was one thing I thought. Looks like he's at the public library. He reaches into his jacket and takes a swig of some vodka. Label reads, Skanokoff. S-K-N-O-K-O-F-F. Let's call it knockoff vodka. Did they not work out a suitable product placement deal with Smirnoff proper, I wondered. Or was it a statement as to their middling quality in the pantheon of vodkas? Or maybe an alcohol brand didn't want to be associated with a drunk driver. Optics. Whatever the case, notice his disapproving grimace as he takes a crack at the bottle. Also, couldn't help but notice the prominent pinky ring he's wearing with the red and green crosshatch pattern. I'm not sure what the affiliation is, but it's not strictly a mafia thing. Tony Sirico said as much to the New York Times once. For him, it was about style above all else. Jim comes up behind him no pun intended, looks like he's been looking for him. Sees he's doodling, the newspaper, the book on bikes. Is this what you've been doing all day? I knew there was a reason you wouldn't let me read the galleys of your book, he says. Ever wonder why they're called fucking galleys? Well, I did. Galleys, of course, are advanced reader copies of books. I used to get them all the time for another podcast I did a while back. The name comes from a time when the typography for books were hand-set by a device called a galley. Vito tells Jim he's doing research. Rocky Marciano rode bikes? Only bikes that 49-0 champ rode, I'd imagine, were stationary ones. Jim says he bets Rocky was a fan of the Greyhounds because he found a trifecta box ticket in the trash. That's the kind of bet placed at the races. It means that your pick 
can finish first, second, or third. It's clear Vito's hankering for some extra cash. Jim storms out. We get an exterior shot of the bookstore, corner of Main Street and Church Street in Booton. Thanks to all of you for educating me on how to pronounce it like the natives. Vito runs out to stop him, says it's complicated. Jim asks if he's even a sports writer. Already talking about moving in, sharing his home. Vito calls him Jimbo. Jesus H. Christ, they're deep into this thing. Trending that way, at least. Vito fesses up to an extent. He's not a writer. He's not from Scottsdale. And the car is not his sister's. He says he's from Jersey but had to leave. Some shit went down with work. His contracting business. Even had to leave his wife and kids. Jim detects alcohol in his breath. It's not even 11 a.m. Which, in 2020, I don't think would be so out of the norm. Vito toughens, stuck in the sticks, running out of money, and now this? Keeps going down the tortuous road of lies compounding on lies. Says he's been divorced for a few years. Jim reminds him he was married once too. And that he can help him get work in construction. The money problem is fixable. He knows lots of people in town who could use a good handyman. But little does he know, that offer would put this thing of theirs on an irreversible course. Speaking of someone who could use a good handyman, cut to the girl surprising Ginny Sack at her front door for her birthday. In the voice of Butch, who you haven't met yet, you should have called first. She's in a hair turban. This is 50. Carmelo turns around and says hi to Sal. Note, she's wearing a fur coat that looks familiar. Way back in the season two finale. Same color, for sure. Sal, looking like the hunchback of Notre Dame, obliges. A little. God, he's such a mope. Janice is marveling at the house, the kitchen, the room, the light. Reminds her of the Palladian villas she saw in Italy. Carmela notices. Angie's immediately pacing around on the phone in the background. Great touch. Ginny says she doesn't notice the house much. She spends most of her time upstairs. Roe recommends Wellbutrin, an antidepressant. Interestingly, that pill would serve a dual purpose in that household, or Johnny Sack at home. It's also used to curb smoking. Their conversation is drowned out by Angie's phone call. She's handling her business while Carmela throws her a look of death. I believe if we're keeping count here, that's the third time. Three. Cut to Jim in bed, reading Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. That's a novelized nonfiction about one of the first modern serial killers set against the backdrop of a World's Fair in late 1890s Chicago. It was supposed to get made into a movie. Martin Scorsese was going to direct. Leonardo DiCaprio was involved. Now, apparently, Hulu's working on making it into a series with them. I feel like after the success of The Queen's Gambit, extending would-be movies into limited series is a pattern that's here to stay. And quite frankly, I'm all for it. Anyway, Jim puts the book away as soon as Vito comes in. 
This scene kind of acts to set the state of play for their relationship. Vito opting for a more subservient role than his day-to-day New Jersey life might lead on. Cut to the model train ripping along its track right into a tunnel. North by Northwest over here. Hardly subtle. No pun intended. Connecting the dots between the last scene and this one. Bobby's in heaven. We see that his entire garage practically has been devoted to this stuff. The only thing missing for this Lionel commercial is some Neil Young playing in the background. Helpless might be a good one. Fitting. That song was part of his contribution to the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young project. Personally, I'm partial to Heart of Gold. But perhaps the best choice for this scene would be Old Man. Since we're about to have a father-son moment, uh, many of us can relate to. Bobby Jr. comes up, goes for his bike. Has little interest in the new landscaping additions to his dad's miniature world. Bobby's trying to stay relevant with his aging boy something all dads inevitably go through. Wants to show Bobby Jr. the mowing Joe thing. Wood getting dumped onto a rail car. Again, a callback to the title of the episode. It's a lumber flat car with operating couplers. Moe and Joe can unload boards with the flip of a switch. And for just $89.99, you can get yours today, just in time to get under the tree, or inside a stocking even. Bobby Sr. offers they have a race, something they no doubt did once before. The Polar Express one says they can trash it. Lionel has a whole line for Polar Express trains, cars, tracks, structures, based off the book that came out in 1985. I imagine the movie with Tom Hanks that came out a few years back put sales through the roof. Bobby Jr. isn't interested. Tom Hanks has no stranglehold over him. He's heading over to a friend's, Rafe's, where they're making a music video. Bobby Sr.'s chin and conductor hat drop in concert when he processes that dry ice is more interesting than powered toy trains. Sidebar, note all the rope on the wall behind Bobby, the shades of orange and yellow. Wonder if he stocked up on those after the Pine Barrens mission, in case he happened to be deployed for more of those. Like a three-point shooting specialist, asked to enter the game in the final seconds to hit a shot or be a decoy. Cut to Carm and Tony in a knife block in the kitchen. She's paying bills. He comes over, gives her a kiss. Mentions a gray cloud hanging over her head. He assumes it's because of AJ. But she takes a beat to build up the courage to tell him what's up. The building inspector already. Note how he kind of hides his face behind the mug and his eyes swing to the right to avoid the confrontation. And oh fuck conveyed through body language alone. He figures out his story, says he sent little Polly. Progress was made with a supervisor, but a subordinate inspector there is a real piece of work, holding everything up. She looks at him like, why not you? Why aren't you personally flexing? But before she can get a word out, he says, next I'll get Syl on it. Of course, complete fucking bullshit written all over his expression. Speaking of Syl, cut to the bing. Syl pinning up a poster of a girl that spoofs the film Secretary with Maggie Gyllenhaal. 
a little decorating ahead of the holidays of the adult variety. T walks in, says Sill's got to pay a visit to the Montville building department. Montville, of course, is a township in New Jersey, a little west and across Interstate 80 from North Caldwell. It's another Republican stronghold on the New Jersey electoral map. T mentioning pieces of work within their bureaucratic construct is interesting. A little writerly referendum, perhaps. Alan Seppenwall, one of the foremost soprano scholars and critics, has ties there. As did Pete Yorn, since singer-songwriters have unofficially become a theme this episode. T wants Syl to lean on an inspector named Ron Sankowski. All the little poly stuff he told Carmela, complete bullshit. If you look up the name Sankowski, you'll first find a Hollywood writer and producer. Used to head up Michael Mann's development. Coincidence? Just then, Bissell, carrying a cleaning apparatus, true to form, opens the door to say that Jenny Sachs' brother's waiting outside to talk. The Lord of the Lenses, Anthony Infante, enters. And he comes bearing gifts. A new item they sell at the store. A little product mix. Diversified revenue streams. Captain of industry over here. It's a cross pen. Made me wonder where cross was on the pecking order of pens. See what I did there? According to an arbitrary survey of the internets, it tends to fall somewhere in the middle, often below brands like Mont Blanc and Parker. But they've carved out a niche for themselves that no other brand has. They're the official supplier of pens to the White House. Going back all the way to the 70s, Gerald Ford. Those pens that are given out as souvenirs after bills are signed. Those are cross pens. Presidents Obama and W. Bush were fans of the Townsend model. Trump broke with tradition, calling the pens horrible. He opted instead for a Sharpie. The gift to Tony is a rollerball. Unclear what the actual model is, but nonetheless, a pen fit for a president a boss, a number one. Thinking Tony disapproves, Anthony offers a fountain instead. What? T gonna do calligraphy in his downtime now? T throws the shiny new pen into a holder with a couple few everyday pens. That's what he thinks of that. Note Sill's pink jacket, by the way. Could be playing in a Flamingo's cover band later. I only have eyes for you. AI says, yeah, I'm going to call him out by his initials on account they're legendary in basketball circles. Your ears only, T. Sill and T break his balls. Sill quietly leaves. AI literally waits a long beat until after the door closes. The certitude of this guy. Tony throws his feet up. Poor AI readies himself. Anthony versus Anthony over here. The matter at hand? Johnny Sack is a silent partner in a heavy equipment leasing company in New Orleans. Guy spread his wings and flew. R. Kelly over here. 
also some beyond New Jersey world building going on here, potentially. Tony's agitated, says, good. FEMA's down there handing out Krugerrands and buckets. That's South African gold coins. Why were they relevant to this scene, this year, this moment, I wondered? Why would Tony know about those? Was he using them as a store of value in his offshore accounts? Is that what became of the cash rolled up in those Campbell's soup cans? Or were they just on the front page of the Star Ledger earlier that day with Salvitro? AI paused long enough to convey that he didn't have the slightest fucking clue what Tony was talking about. He paused long enough for a defender to think he had a shot against the real AI on the court. Apparently you, Tony that is, have some knowledge of business or ways to drum up business in the area. T's response to that is Dick Cheney for president of the fucking universe. Non sequitur? Not quite. And I don't think Cheney ever actually ran for president. But his career peak legacy is a bit of a double-edged sword. On one hand, he's considered the most powerful vice president in history. On the other hand, he has one of the lowest, if not the lowest, approval ratings at the time he left office. But what's this? The Cook political report now? AI continues on account of John's liquidity problems. John wants T to contact the brothers, the owners he's silent partners with, to pursue a sale. Or at least convert Johnny Sack's share to cash. The way AI motions his hands, wheels churning. Nice touch. Demonstrative. He rehearsed the fuck out of this before walking into Tony's lair like that. Johnny wants Tony and only Tony to do it. Phil Leotardo shouldn't be involved. The hand gesture suggesting, cut him out. This, of course, after T and Phil just cut Johnny Sack out of a deal last episode. What's this called? Working both sides like that. There's a word for it. A term. Playing both sides against the middle is the idiom. But I feel like there's a knockout punch of a one-word way to express this. Like, duplicitous, but with less fucking syllables. Merriam-Webster over here. Guile. AI continues. Just know, John's asking as a friend. That term, we know, includes and excludes certain things. But before T can get a word in, obviously, there's a finder's fee. Tony digests it all in silence. Drum roll. All the fucking permutations. And from silence to a loud cement mixing machine, we cut to Vito. On that New Hampshire construction grind. That was fast. Watching him load the machine, he actually doesn't look that comfortable in this form. Recall, we're used to seeing him tan and fan and sit and blather with his other no-workers. After loading just one bag, we quick cut to him napping in a hideaway place. 
a barn of some kind, his feet up on an old vintage automobile. He's caught by the woman that hired him. The hell's this? A siesta? Says he wasn't sleeping. I wasn't sleeping. Just resting his hips. I was resting my hips. Now, Ganascoli had legit hip problems during this period, so it was real. And I think he was actually really going to have surgery, but the timing was delayed because of the show. Cut to Carm at home, kitchen table. Tony comes in, takes off his jacket, wonders if he's early. Where's dinner? She says she's interviewing a new contractor for her spec, a Bill DeGilio, the guy who built the Sacramony house. Looks like she took Janice's interest in it a step further. Best part? Ginny says he works for a price. He works for a price. Great turn of phrase. Can't tell you how many times I've said the words for a price, for the most serious of things, down to the most trivial. Can you take out the trash? For a price. You coming out tonight? For a price. Can you share some of that pie with me? For a fucking price. T asks, he coming here now? She says, yeah. She picked up a couple of sandwiches from Italianissimo. That's the place right next to the bird feed store. Tony's eaten there with Zelman before, and Murmur did a credit card reader pick up there once too. Tony pauses, can't believe it. Breathing heavy, irritated. His own guile getting matched in some respects, at least in his mind. Gets first crack at those sandwiches, though. The way he's able to handle them and flip them open to inspect their contents with one hand is surgical. Licks his finger to ready himself for the precision. Then says, you know, your father did this house. Big revelation. And it was more than decent workmanship. He's defending Hugh, as he should, by the way. She gets up and avoids the confrontation. Amy Cuddy-style power pose walks into the kitchen. For all we know, she and Hugh are still on the outs. He says you better think twice before you have to spend more time than you expected. His point, taking away from other things she's supposed to be doing like looking after him. She wonders since when do you care so much about my dad? Oh, when does he not? His handling of the sandwich after that cut is more whimsical, and we don't get to see the contractor, unfortunately. Could have made for a great scene. Tony sizing him up, asking questions. But we get Melthy instead, so all is forgiven. He's complaining about Carmela's pet project, Even in bed, she's a million miles away. He explains their deal. He financially backs her spec house, and she maintains a don't ask, don't tell policy with respect to his work and his recreational life outside of the house. But Melfi points out there hasn't been much recreating since the shooting. He acknowledges that and agrees and says that's okay. Note the extra-long pause and awkward fidgetiness. Is he going to tell her about Skiff? Is he regretting how that played out? He does some magic with his fingers and then pivots from recreating to Janice. (laughs) 
awkward, but that's one way to get it out of your head, I suppose. He explains that she's getting her meat from Satriel's, also awkward, and that he's happy to hook Melfi up with anything she needs in that department. Her stoicism, after the offer, makes the whole fucking scene. The length of the beat is a little like watching a long-range three, waiting for it to hit the net. For all intents and purposes, she turned away from the ball the moment she shot it. Knew it was a money tray. He goes into how he and Janice would hang out there when their dad had business. They'd steal cigarettes, play house, shit like that. It's weighing on him that Jan said he was mean to her and Bobby. But he admits he loves it when he can take a shit on her and her husband. Love the pause before and her husband. His little hand gesture. Shit really boils inside him. What's that about? He asks. He gets a kick out of thinking about all the task, task shit Bobby has to do for Junior. Let's be devil's advocate for Tony here. What the fuck value does Bobby really have in the grand scheme of things at this point? Not a whole lot. He was comfortable before because he was Junior's page. And now he's even more comfortable since marrying Janice. He might be smart in that he makes himself indispensable in certain capacities, but everyone's dispensable, as we know. Melfi wonders if it's because it makes them seem weak, what she calls their acts of kindness. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves, Bobby's weakness, or lack thereof, will be a point for discussion at the top of next season. Tony counters, Janice is all about acts of Janice. But isn't Tony all about acts of Tony? And on and on, down the line. Melfi calls out the fact that he's not very close to Jan. Not since childhood. But he defends her. Note, his natural inclination, whenever someone attacks or questions his family, is to defend it. It's okay for him to shit on them, but not anyone else. That's very human, very real, very relatable. And I think an intentional characteristic that makes him so relatable to all of us across the board. He says she used to give it back to their mother. And Melfi wonders if part of the reason for their disconnect was that she didn't defend him as well. But he says, please, it was every man for himself. He starts to go into this story about how their parents left her in charge once. His eyes go someplace else. Long pause. His head sways. All the permutations. Melfi nudges him to go ahead. In that beat, you realize you can listen to this guy talk about literally whatever the fuck for another hour. That's the powerful connection we have to him. Especially at this point. That's the power of his acting, his persona, his presence. He says Jan tape recorded him and Barb having a fight. And she held that cassette tape over his head for a month. To which I thought, just a month? Fucking extortion, he says. Made me make her bed, get her shit. Big part of Tony's business is extortion. 
Nobody likes the taste of their own medicine. Melfi asks if she did that to Barbara too. That's not the fucking point. Annoyed. This is about him, goddammit. I've been coming here for five years. You still don't understand what it means to tape somebody in my family? Evidence. Diamonds are forever like family and loyalty or real rap songs like cream or my melody. Diamonds are forever like my infinite thought, like respect in the hood that can't be bought. Diamonds are forever like family and loyalty or real rap songs like cream or my melody. Diamonds are forever like my infinite thought, like respect in the hood that can't be bought. Word up. Diamonds. Cut to Anthony Infante, AI, debriefing Johnny Sack. Talking about that thing. The coffee with the chicory. Great New Orleans reference, of course. Actually, infusing coffee with chicory goes all the way back to France. Love that Johnny Sack has no clue what he's talking about. The wide eye, the pause, the processing. AI says he's bad at talking in their code. But after this, I'd say he's quite good. They go back and forth. Pure comedy. We hear prison buzzers in the background. Bottom line for Johnny Sack, is Tony going to pull through? Yes. But he wants 10 cups, not 7. That's percentage points. Johnny Sack gasps. Okay, done. No negotiation. That's how bad things are. Or more importantly, how from where he's seated, it's all a big nothing. He turns to more pressing matters. The birthday cake for Jin with the marzipan flowers. At which point the question arises, is any birthday cake ever after this a satisfactory birthday cake if marzipan flowers aren't a part of the final design? Marzipan, by the way, translates roughly to pastry bread. AI thinks it's code for something. The stuff behind the pool? As he looks away, wondering what Johnny Sack's talking about. This is Matthew Weiner's genius shining through. How it's blunt force comedy, but somehow understated. These kinds of exchanges are part and parcel of what made Mad Men so potent, and quite frankly, nostalgic for this show as well as the period itself. As Johnny Sack explains he means an actual fucking cake, we cut to Jim and Vito, or Vince, spatafor. Jim gets a page, likely a fire, unless, of course, he moonlights as Batman, too. Bit of funny writing, I thought, Jim says. Okay, but stay out of the way. The fat jokes, it seems, traveled to New Hampshire. Cut to the scene of the incident. A church basement flooded. Pastor is trapped down there. Was he alone? A cynic might wonder. There's an arcing wire hanging. Shoddy workmanship to extend and rework the writing from earlier. Vito tells a guy he started out as an electrical contractor. Next thing we know, he's up on a ladder. Clipping wires. What about those hips? Gotta say, though, great balance. Tentatively cuts two cables, which cuts the power to the church. It's all about clipping the right one first. The volunteer crew cheers him on. Just then, Jim rushes up, pissed. 
Guy stole his fucking thunder. They get into it. Jim mocks his masculinity in front of a group of guys. But it's broken up, and the pastor is rescued. Cut to later at the bar, that same local dive bar apparently where volunteer firefighters debrief. The guys are encouraging Vito to join as a firefighter. Jim isn't into it, says it's a big commitment. Vito brings up the hips again, the surgery. But one guy suspects he's going to leave this crap hole the minute he hears from his publisher. Cue the violin for the story of Vince and Jim. Vito trying to crack the potentially uncomfortable gaze with Jim by offering five bucks a point playing darts. Much easier money, he reasons, than that handyman grind out in the cold. But no dice. It's almost midnight. Guys are spent. What about poker? Back where Vito comes from, the night's just starting. No dice. From a guy whose night's just starting to a guy whose night's about to end. Cut to Bobby and a guy unlocking a safe. Good week. Even with the fucking dolphins. What was up with the dolphins in early 2006? This episode aired in May 2006. Was it real or did saying the dolphins just enhance the staccato of the line? Kind of feels like it was. Real, that is. They finished 9-7 and seven that year. An improvement from a 4-12 and 12 outing the year before. If we're really parsing this, I'd imagine they screwed up the betting lines by going on a six-game winning streak at the end of the season, including a shocking win against the back-to-back Super Bowl champion New England Patriots. Note, one of the whiteboards has some NBA games on it too. Seattle is written down. Nice nostalgia there. The Supersonics' final season in that city was, of course, 2008. Said with the same meaning and purpose as when Carmela said, Pete Best. Going all the way back to all happy families for that one. Also on the walls, NHL and NFL games and their spreads. Bobby takes an envelope and walks to his car. Gets called Boss on his way out. Nice touch given what Tony just said about him. Outside, the camera widens. He comes at it. You sense tension. You see the neighborhood is rough. Quiet streets. Stripped vehicles. Trash strewn everywhere. It's like a look-ahead feature on some software compressors. You can see what's going to happen just a little before it actually happens. He gets jumped. Beaten with a baseball bat. Five unidentified black males. They go for his joint. That's gun. He asks if they know who the fuck he is. Love the guy, but really? (laughs) Who would? Guys in New York probably haven't the faintest clue. But self-talk, right? Even in times of trouble. They know enough that he came out of a bookie's office. They sufficiently beat him, enough to grab the envelope he just collected, where they discover three Gs. They pull a gun on him. He begs for his life, says he's got kids. But the guy with the gun relents to peer pressure and pulls the trigger. Looks like the bullet hits the ground and ricochets up. Whatever it is, the fallout can't be good for Bobby. Immediately wondering if he can collect disability. Thinking, of course, 
of him complaining about people smoking mushrooms and collecting government checks. He sobs in a fashion that would make Phil Leotardo cringe. But saying he got touched up would be an understatement. This was almost as bad as the beating Robert De Niro got in Cape Fear. Cut to Tony at dinner, new friends, the brother owners of Bayou Leasing. T is trying to extract the cash and get his cut. Says the retail value is about six mil. This as the owners bury their faces in their food and drink, respectively. They say between five and six. One of the brothers calls the waitress Cher. Another subtle New Orleans reference. That's deer in French. Unless, of course, her real name is Cher, like the singer. We all know someone like that who memorizes the names of waitresses in restaurants. T wonders if they can find some bidders in 30 days. Says John's half is payable to him. Half, they wonder? Tony says, yeah, and it's not up for debate. Apparently, they have a debt boondoggle on their heads, the likes of which you've never seen. All because of a sports bet gone bad. One of the guys was floated 50K. Next thing you know, Johnny Sachs buying in for half a million. The angry one at the table, a lot of balls. Look at him sitting there like they don't do this shit every day, he says. Onion rings and steaks at the table. You took John's loan, Tony says. Only word missing from that sentence is asshole. Now it's time to cash in. Then he says, you two don't seem like brothers. Turns out, they're brothers-in-law. The Macasian lookalike? Yeah, I said it. 15 years of womanly company, but I had to come all the way to New Jersey to get truly fucked. That's William Russ, the dad from Boy Meets World. Remember Corey and Topanga? And we wonder why Chase loathed the medium. He asks if they have a problem. The lanky one? No, sir. Says he's buying a boat. The chuckle, the self-satisfaction, perfection. The angry one, Macasian 2.0, attempts to go toe-to-toe. You fancy yourself a businessman. The condescension is seeping. Would you sell now with all that money pouring into New Orleans? He's referring to the cost to rebuild the city after the hurricanes. Between Katrina and Rita, the total damages were $150 billion. In response, the government put up about $120 billion. But 75% of that went to emergency relief, not rebuilding. Philanthropic giving came in at around $6.5 billion. And private insurance paid out $30 billion in claims. Either way, all told, an incalculable amount of opportunity for grift. But T explains it comes down to loyalty, or some version of it. It's as simple as John Sacramoni 
asked me to. Vin 2.0 throws money and a napkin on the table to leave. Says we're very different people. That guy not get the memo? Getting up and turning your back to a boss like that? And throwing money? Remember, you eat, I pay. The lanky one lingers, seemingly more familiar with the type of guy he's dealing with. Cut to Tony asleep. TV's on. It's John Wayne's voice. The film is The Quiet Man, a film that foreshadows a scene we'll see in Soprano home movies. Notice the empty bowl of ice cream undulating with his expanding and contracting chest. We hear the line in the film, non-belligerence will kindly remain neutral. Shake hands and come out fighting. Fitting for the lanky brother that lingered in the last frame. T's phone rings. It's Pauly. Asks if he heard about Bacala. T says Jan gave him the breaking news. The irony of that line. And the way he says it, indifferently. Almost put out. Like, get over it already. Also, he was comfortably napping and watching a movie after hearing news like that. Shows how much he gives a shit about his brother-in-law. Continuation of what he talked about in Melfi's office. That fucking part of Newark. Even the cops don't go there no more. So you heard everything. Where's Quasimodo when you need him? Paulie sinks into his shrink-wrapped chair, says the slug blew bits of sidewalk into his eye. Tony repeats, yeah, yeah, I heard. Doubling down on precisely how many fucks he gives. Feet up, reclined in the chair, ice cream still teeter-tottering on his torso. Lot of urgency. Polly says the doctors are optimistic, but T has his own opinion of them. It's always good news till it ain't. Just then, though, he gets sentimental. Asks about Polly's prostate. Polly says it's cancer, but he might have caught it early. T finally springs up. The sound effect of the spoon. Perfect. Pauly says it's encapsulated. That's a good thing. He's taken a course of radiation to knock the PSA back to the single digits. Recall that's prostate-specific antigen. Tony wonders about his hair and shit. And we are too. Imagine him without wingtips. But so far, so good, he says. On account, he must have done good things in his life. He finishes with, your ears only. T? Absolutely. Cut to Tony entering a packed house at the back of the bing. Is he going to tell them? Frame makes you think that for a sec. We know him so well at this point. The show so well at this point. That it's a foregone conclusion. But that's the brilliance of Chase. We think we know what the fuck we think. But then, the camera pulls back to reveal Pauly's there too. Carlos talking about Bobby. Guy's got an eye patch, like Hathaway. A reference to a Madison Avenue ad campaign for the clothing company of the same name. A wonderful Weiner injection for his work to come. Carlos says Bobby was really rattled. T, of course, enough with the fucking preambles, right? 
he should have never been out that late in that neck of the woods to begin with. Puts the onus on him. He's right, but no brotherly love at all? These two are like Geno's and Pat's cheesesteaks in Philly right now. No love lost. Pauly cops T's line from the night before. Cops don't even go there no more. T lets him have it, but makes enough of a face to convey to Polly that he appropriated that shit. Either way, guy's vision's fucked. Could be a candidate for a cornea transplant. They actually do those, by the way. Peel off the corneas of dead people and swap those with the faulty ones on patients. But T says he should be a candidate for a brain transplant. At that point, be that as it may, Carlo flips T an envelope. Says that's all Bobby was thinking about. Fuck that honor and loyalty shit. It was a maneuver, Carlo. Because he knew it was his own fucking fault. He's unmoved. Note the American flag and bag of Dunkin' Donuts. Fitting. Powerful stuff. It was a maneuver, Carlo. Wow. Because he knew it was his own fucking fault. The word maneuver applied to Bobby. Carlo's speechless. Was that some foreshadowing of its own directed at Carlo? Sure feels like it. And the shrewdness of the writers to slip something like that in, right in a corner pocket where we least expect it, when all eyes, pun intended here, are on Bobby. But what's Carlo going to do? Tony's probably pissed at him because his load is floundering compared to his predecessor, Vito. Seriously, who's going to come close to touching those kinds of dollars? Notice all the envelopes T's been handed since Vito bolted have been razor thin. What? Don't give me that look. Cut to Johnny Sack's lawyer sitting down with the prosecutor, trying to bang out a plea deal. Based on the net worth of the family, she says they're looking at 240 months. That's a number that Phil Leotardo knows well. It's 20 fucking years. And 90% of his assets. Ron says that makes trials seem like a risk worth taking. She asks if he's seen the discovery evidence suggesting they've got him by the balls, but also could be posturing. Apparently, the defense has some leverage. The prosecution came to them for a deal. Ron says the issue's providing for Ginny. They want the house to be off limits. The prosecutor, Renee, asks what he wants. He says the shit that has nothing to do with John. The house, the Yukon, her IRA, the deed on the daughter's condo. And 12 years, not 20. For conspiracy to commit murder. Get back to me when you're sober, Ron. That's actor Rebecca Wasaki, by the way. Cut to Bobby watching the Eagles-Giants game with Tony. The Donovan-McNabb 11-year era of Eagles football. Great bit of nostalgia. Also, Tony might have referred to him as Donovan Jamal Ginsburg McNabb, as his middle name is, in fact, Jamal. Eight. Playoff appearances, five NFC Championship games, 
and one Super Bowl. This era was also early Eli Manning, with his running mate at the time, Tiki Barber. Manning, of course, picked up two Super Bowls and two Super Bowl MVPs, arguably amounting to a more successful NFL career if you base it strictly off championships. Their career quarterback rating was 85.6 to 84.1, with McNabb eking out the higher number there. But like these two guys here on the screen in front of us, they're both sitting in recliners now. Tease is broken. Bobby asks if he wants to switch. Good host or cranking it up like a switch on his Lionel set to get a promotion? T is not happy to be there. Very much the same vibe I throw off when I'm forced by my wife to be somewhere I don't want to be. So true to life. Every gesticulation. Jan comes over and hands out drinks. Barb and Tom, we learn, are en route too, bringing wine. Multiple bottles, one would suspect. It's really the only way through the ordeal. Like Sly and the Family Stone said, a family affair. Jan grabs Bobby's drink back from him when she discerns that he recently took a Vicodin. Vicodin and alcohol, not a good mix. Now, a lot of you know, as uninitiated as I am in the world of certain recreational drugs, I do have firsthand experience with that combination. Tony reluctantly makes small talk. Giants are up big. And Bobby's cool with that. Just don't beat the spread is all. Red, lest you get a skinny envelope, boss. Bobby Jr. comes down. He's heading out. That's as much detail as he wants to give. Bobby Sr. would like to watch the Giants. They're kicking ass. But Jr. wants to go to a friend's to watch the Chargers. Can't really blame him. This was the peak Ladanian Tomlinson era. He rushed for over 1,400 yards in 05, over 1,800 yards in 06, even logging 31 combined touchdowns that season, breaking every record, and ankle for that matter. Bobby Jr. gets in a shot on his way out. Some people aren't too cheap to buy the satellite package. A dig on his dad's financials, in front of his boss, no less. What if you just give a shit about one team? Sit down. This is a Giants house. I hate the fucking Giants. Oh! Bobby Jr., shaping up to be very much like the AJ Soprano from the pilot. So what, no fucking ZD now? Says he hates the fucking Giants. Speaking of, he even brings up AJ. Says he didn't have to come to Sunday dinner. Note how he looks at Tony to support his cause. But AJ has a job. At least he does right now. Also, fashion aside, love Bobby Jr.'s chain. A rite of passage. Jan says he's welcome to go get a job too. But first, to go get his report card and read it out loud to everybody. Note the long cut to Tony, taking it in. I imagine he sees a version of himself. Recalls a similar life station event of his own in his own mind. Feel sorry for the kid, for those putrid soprano genes, as Tony will come to call them. Or in this case, genes by association. Bobby's waiting, a bystander in this encounter. Bobby Jr.'s got nothing too. And Janice thought so, says to go finish his Spanish homework before dinner. 
can't figure out if this is a version of Janice I like or not. Tony soaking it all up as we cut to T back in therapy. Talking about Bobby. It's terrible what happened. Some baseline empathy established. But that's about it. It's one thing after another with her family. Melfi wonders if it's bad luck or whether T thinks they deserve it. Tony isn't sure, but fucking Janice attracts drama. She creams over the misery, he says. Sounds an awful lot like someone else we know all too well, right? The matriarch. Of course, that's Melfi's next question. Does she remind you of anyone? Teed up to perfection, but still a classic. First, the wide shot. Then, the close-up on her. A punch landed in cuts. T's whole thing is when they were growing up, she had something. His word. Like, potential. Potential in life. Beautiful hair. She was built. Kids were buying ice cream, giving them baseball cards for intros. Made me wonder if there were any Honus Wagner's in there. Melfi wonders if it's jealousy. Oh, Jesus Christ, will you make up your fucking sick mind? First it's my mother, now I want to fuck my sister? It's normal. Not sick. That she functioned as the focus of your early sexual feelings. In fact, it was probably mutual. Oh, Jesus Christ. You describe her as built. The cut to Tony. Processing that statement probably eliminating any hard-ons going forward, for the next couple days at least. She continues, the feeling was probably mutual. And he kind of likes that one for 0.2 seconds, that he was the object of desire, not the other way around. Whatever your bond, she wonders, what happened between then and now? And the following is one of their most brilliant exchanges. He sinks in his chair, head slumped down. Says she fought it out with their mother and eventually took off. The took off part is what's stuck in his craw, right? She left him to deal with all their bullshit. Mostly Livia's. Then Melfi asks the, what I call, Costa Mesa question. What if you had taken off? He ponders it. He sees himself selling patio furniture for a sec. Then, that never would have happened. I did what I was told. Your father's son, she says. And all that went with it. All the success and money, he says. As if that were all it was about. His body language saying one thing, the words coming out of his mouth, another. What else did you inherit, she asks. Long pause. My mother. Janice got laid, she took off. She laughed at all this shit. Then the trip's over and she's back and she's one of us and she wants her peace. Well, let me tell you, she gets nothing. Because I got the scars. So it's mine. The anger. The amount of time. It's been brewing. I got the scars, so it's mine. 
Camera's on Melfi, sucking that all in. The only place it can go. After that, we cling to her face for survival, like Tom Hanks on that little island in Castaway. One of my favorite fade-outs to the sounds of That's Amore by Dean Martin. On the lyric, When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie. Exactly what just happened to her. Exactly what just happened to us. Cut to a saute pan. Onions, peppers, garlic, two hands with an above-average command of a chef's knife. Artie? No. Vito. Going to town. Slicing and dicing. Towel over his shoulder. Great detail. Lights two candles as Jim comes in. Vito says he thought he'd make a little dinner. Like we do back home. First up, pasta badan. That's macaroni and potatoes. Real peasant food. Next, a little salad. Finally, pork chops and vinegar peppers. The twist of his cheek followed by a wink and a smile. What's this? Vito Spatafore's marionette theater now? Whatever everybody says about this character or this story choice, it's a nice moment for him with all the shit that's looming. It's a nice, can we say, agridolce for what's inevitable, for what's to come. And we cut to the suggestion of another rough night. Vito sawing wood, speaking in his head, figuring what time it is, focused on lunch, talking himself out of looking at his watch, a point of relatability for most of us, postulating the time based on the angle of the sun. You know what the guy needs? A couple few good pods or a playlist. The symbolism of the wood sawing, Jim and Vito's relationship, the physical as well as the emotional. But as much as it's grinding on him, it's also grinding on us a little at this point. He relents, he looks. Nice Oris watch, by the way. But fuck, it's not even 10. Fashion aside, note Vito's Carhartt jacket. Years ahead of his time, he was. Next day, back at Jim's, the two bikes side by side, but an empty patch in the driveway. Rooster's crow. Jim's asleep, overhears Vito in the bathroom, or at least he thinks it's him. Water's running. He calls out, but no answer. Jim gets up to check, notices an empty closet, then an empty drawer. Finally looks outside, notices both bikes are there, but the car's gone. Cut to the car. Vito ripping through Booton. I'm sorry, New Hampshire. Top of the morning. He's emotionally overwrought. Feels like he's nursing a drink in one hand. Speaking of emotionally overwrought, cut to Johnny Sack sitting down with his lawyer. The moment of truth. Fifteen years 4.1 million. He keeps his home, 45K in equity from the girl's variable life insurance, and Ginny's IRA at 110K. And that's it. Or go to trial. Ron says, you're a young man. In 15 years, you'll be 67. 
the golden years. Grandkids. But John's destroyed. Do I have to do the allocution? He asks. That's the formal statement defendants must make before the court. Basically an admission of sorts. Ron says it's practically the whole point of it all. The long silence. The long gaze at Ron. The sound floor of the room. Makes you shiver even now. The timing is so fucking methodical. Like a time signature on a piece of music. Then, I'll take it. My thought, as opposed to what? How much worse could trial be? That Ginny gets nothing in longer years? Before Ron leaves, Johnny Sack says the IRA of Ginny's, it's from when she worked at the tie counter at Wanamaker's, where they first met. Right there, he knows what he's just done. He knows everyone's going to hear the admission. That it's going to be reported widely in the press. That he's sealed his fate in this thing of theirs. Putting his wife and kids above his oath. Cut back to Vito ripping down the freeway. Feels like he's headed south. He's drinking heavy. Sinatra's playing. My way. There are tears. Where's Richie April? What? You gonna cry now? The tears, partially, no doubt, are because of the off-brand vodka he's drinking. Like cheapskate Bobby who wouldn't splurge on the NFL package, Vito, to the chagrin of chairman of the board Sinatra, went for second best. Does Billy Joel have a lyric with second best in it? I feel like he does. I know there's Don't Forget Your Second Wind, Is that it? What's this, Genius.com now? I digress. We see a sign and, yep, he's on 95 headed south towards New York City and Jersey. Why is he going back? A little manual labor was all it took? To return to certain death? Or does he really think he can talk himself out of this one? Figure something out with T. Guess if Pussy was able to be an off-the-reservation cocksucker once, he could too even though it's more literal in this instance. Somewhat ominously, a cop passes him, and then, cut to Tony doing an early morning fridge raid. No mocha mix. The straw that broke the camel's back. Meanwhile, Meadow's there, reading the gossip papers. She's disappointed because she was looking forward to fresh blueberries. Says mom hasn't shopped. Light code to Tony, perhaps. This spec house side project is cutting into her homemaker responsibilities. T wonders why Meadow's home. Apparently she told Finn he could go see a movie in the city by himself because she wasn't up for it. The problem? He actually went. She isn't thrilled with his decision and takes a little of it out on Tony. But Tony redirects in the nicest way possible. This is Meadow, after all. She takes his signal as a license to break down. Says things are off. Finn spends more time at Jeffrey's apartment than with her. Tony throws something in the microwave and ever so slowly and reluctantly slides over to console her. You know who's really good to talk about this stuff, he says? Your mother. 
At least he's honest. She says this whole year off, she's seen such a selfish side in Finn. They sleep together, but apart. He sleeps on the floor. He tries to verbalize his empathy, but it comes out wrong. A little blunt. Refers to their habitation situation as living in sin, which of course makes her jump up and leave. Talk to your mother about this shit. Cut to Tony walking into the Bing office, angry, slamming doors, carrying that baggage from one place to another. Which is interesting because he's usually pretty good at compartmentalization. Asks Sill if he's seen the guy at the building department yet. Sill says he was going to wait until Friday, when it's not so packed. He says not to bother. That shit at home really got to him. Back over to Vito and Sinatra, swaying on the snowy road. Feels like it could be Pine Barrens for a beat. He takes one last giant swig over the lyric, I took the blows. <laughs> Too good. Then, drives right into the back of a Wagoneer. An unlucky guy was just out checking the mail. Regularness of life. That's actor Guy Paul, by the way. Purely a coincidence they cast a guy to play some guy with a Jeep? I think not. Vito tries to pull back, pull away. But the two vehicles are virtually fused together. The guy outside's surprisingly nice about the whole thing. Wonders why Vito's airbag didn't deploy. He says somebody took it out, sold it. Who would do such a thing? Guy wonders. We, of course, can fondly remember back to that whole airbag con seasons ago. But I always wondered why Vito would need the cash for that scam from his own personal car. Vito admits fault. Guy confirms as much. The old lawyer in me got me thinking about the rules admitting fault. They're state-specific. New Jersey is not a no-fault state. It's an at-fault state or tort state. That means the driver who causes the accident foots the whole bill. Well, their insurer foots the whole bill. Sometimes when it's not so clear-cut, fault can be apportioned to a degree. But what's this, a 1L night school class at Rutgers Law? Vito wants to settle up now and get on his way. But the guy wants to file a police report. In other words, you know, do what you're supposed to do. Vito says he took the worst of it. Take 500 and let's call it a day. But this guy's a pro. And then you call your insurance on me? But in fairness to Vito, how would he if they didn't exchange information? I guess, how can the guy trust Vito not to make a note of it when he gets back in the car? Vito ups the ante. Offers six. But Guy says he's just up the street. They'll call the police. They'll come right out. Turn on your hazards. An ominous foreshadow he probably never intended to make. Vito says he'll get his registration. The other guy goes into his car to get something. Vito looks around, carefully, calculatingly, like he's going to shoot this guy. That's the first thought. He checks again. Long beat. Enough that you can hear that wind. They walk up the road, and that's exactly what he does. Perfect symmetry. Long, wide shot at moment of impact for full effect. He popped Jackie Jr. in the back of the head, and now this guy. He took it from behind twice in the show. And figuratively speaking now, gave it from behind twice 
too. He's able to break away with some creative maneuvering and curse words, and we cut to Anthony and Fonte catching T as he's leaving the Bing. T avoids a chat, but AI says he hasn't heard from him. Confidence of this guy peaking now. He's like Tyler Hero in the playoffs. T refers to the New Orleans thing as the fuckheads from fuckland. Then he's silent. Just looks away and listens. Almost as if he's not going to engage on this subject any further. Parabolics and shit. Also, permutations. Tony's hatching up a new plan. And AI just stands there, confused as hell. Then, cut to him delivering the new terms to Johnny Sack. T wants his house. Wants him to unload it to his sister at a reduced price. Half price, actually. But, in exchange, he'll knock 2% off his finder's fee and make sure those pricks sell. Johnny Sack. Ugh. The resignation of Johnny Sack. He ponders it for a second and then, I guess beggars can't be choosers. But wait, wasn't his whole MO that he wanted to make sure Jenny had the house? That she was provided for? Another example of cash is king. Says the worst part of it all, he's got to sell the idea to Jenny somehow. Now, I'm sure there are more than a couple few jokes that could be made about that scenario. But for this, I tried to imagine what it would be like to tell my wife that I needed to sell our house for half price to create some cash. Vince Curatola conveyed that apocalyptic reality with ease. Brilliant performance. The way he pursed his lips at the end. Cut to T and Carmela at home. Oh shit, right? How long before she finds out about the building department? Turns out, not long at fucking all. She goes right for it. He tells her Sill didn't have any luck. Really? You're kidding, she says. Can't she parse his bullshit? From three streets down by now? She asks, did he bring him a gift? He says, cash. So how hard did he lean on the guy? The fact that she pulled out that terminology in broad daylight. Well, under their incandescence or LEDs or whatever the fuck. But still. Um, Sill knows his business. Sill knows his business. Polite code for back the fuck off. Then Tony floats another idea. As Carmela's face morphs like the seasons. Just sell it. You'll get a good price. 30% return on your money. So that's it? You, you just give up? I don't think I ever heard that before. Well, look, the guy said no. How far you want to push this thing? Oh, those sons of bitches. Her look. Her blank stare. The silence. Again. The use of silence, as important as just about everything else. She believed him. Tony, satisfied, hurting even the people he loves most. Think about this. Because of some unreplenished mocha mix. How's that for a you-fuck-you? To top it all off, 
he makes it about him. You want to go out to dinner tonight at least? The at least is fucking perfection. The TV music in the background as we cut to Janice checking out her new fucking digs, discussing plans to spruce it up, but being mindful of the costs, you know, since they paid market price and all. Camera pulls away from her and her interior decorator. She worked at the same place Valerie did. Anyway, camera pulls back to reveal Ginny, sipping tea, her life flashing in front of her eyes. Cut to, by the way, these short burst scenes are so effective. Drive the story with the lightest touch. They're like Aaron Rodgers' 40-yard passes, floating just high enough so the middle linebacker has no chance at it. And right in between, the little crease afforded a seam route in a cover three defensive read. I know. Bill Belichick over here. Cut to the courthouse. Johnny Sack's elocution. He gonna cry now? Don't you cry now, Johnny Sack. Don't disgrace Philly like that. In the end, it was a short and sweet yes. That he was part of La Cosa Nostra. Cut immediately to Phil and his crew watching on TV. Fucking nauseating. Different space, by the way. Social club or whatever. Handful of new faces, too. Phil didn't allocute nothing. Some of the guys there try to look on the bright side. He could have flipped. But they should know better trying that shit with Phil. Are you fucking kidding me? You don't ever admit the existence of this thing. Ever. Johnny Sack looked weak right there. The very thing he was trying to avoid with contact lenses. He told Philly this himself, remember? Glasses would make him look weak. Now this? Another guy. He should have stood trial like a man. Throw your best evidence at me and meet your burden of fucking proof. So help you God. Phil, with a line for the ages. I did 20 fucking years. Legend. Note the Caravajesque lighting treatment for that one. Cut hard to Carm, staring frigidly out the window in the kitchen. She, too, did 20 fucking years of her own. And now, what's she got to show for it? Can't even get her husband to lean on a building inspector. T comes down, notices she's staring at the sheer curtains, almost like she's staring at a wall. Tony, expecting something about the house, says, What? She's got something else on her mind, though. Says, Johnny Sack pleaded guilty. It was on the radio. He got 15 years. When she says that, the only thing we see is Tony's eyes. The only thing we hear is Tony's breath. This frame reminds me of something I might come back to later. But it's very foreshadowing the eyes and breath in particular. If you've seen the show all the way through, go back and look at this and tell me if you see a resemblance to something that comes later. This frame and a much later frame. There's a continuity. Remember, this thing only ends two ways. The can or the other thing. This look resembled a look he might have where he to be sentenced to 15 in the can, or worse. 
Cut to Chris doing the Chris trot. Frantically goes to a window, sees his car's being towed. Remember, I've been calling it Johnny Sack's car all this time on the pod. This was why. The Maserati's being seized by a couple of U.S. Marshals. Also, looks like Chris got a place by the water. Some place a little south of Fort Lee, maybe. You can see the Citigroup Center in the background around 53rd Street. And the Empire State Building in the far right of the frame. Note the lone bird sitting on top of a light post, watching. Just like the raven when he got made. Chris tries to explain that he bought it off Johnny Sack's wife. They say she violated a court order that froze his assets. Chris calls bullshit, says he paid 25 grand cash for that. Well below book, by the way. The marshal says it's going up for auction in Parsippany. You like it so much? Buy it again. Parsippany's uh, ways west on I-80. Then, Chris goes off. Pine Baron style. Says everything but the kitchen sink of all his lines. One-shoe cocksucker. Cut to Tony and Sill in T's backyard, carrying boxes of DVDs, likely boosted. They're debriefing on Johnny Sack to think that piece of shit was my friend once. Exactly what Tony said earlier, right? Fuck that honor and loyalty shit. Guy's as good as dead to them now. T says as much. Hopes he dies in the can. Sill takes it a step further. Says he would throw acid in his face. The most aggressive thing he's ever said. Even stronger feelings than he displayed toward the Native Americans who challenged the efficacy of Columbus Day. No chance for hearts and minds on this one. Speaking of heart, just then, Salvitro comes up. Perfect fucking bookend, right? Wants to know about the Sacramony place. Now that he's guilty and all, you think maybe I could take him off my route. What the fuck did you just say, Sal? I don't know. <laughs> Sill, the fucking lawnmower man just said John was guilty, T. Sill's referencing a movie that was called that, loosely based off a short story by Stephen King. The movie was so bad, King wanted nothing to do with it and sued, favorably, to be disassociated with it. Back to Sal, T corrects him. He pled guilty, Sal. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Tony goes off on the character and nature of the government at the time, suggests he was tortured or coerced in some way. Real Zero Dark Thirty shit. Don't besmirch the man, Sal. Then Sal follows up again. So about the yard. Pulling confidence out of the same well as Anthony Infante here. The audacity. Still can't believe what he's hearing. But I think in that moment, T actually respected the guy. That, and he hooked his sister up so big, he was going to revert to his nature of finding ways to fuck her over. Especially now that we know the backstory. Thanks, of course, to therapy. T says he's off the hook. And Sal's smile is the quintessential look for celebrating small victories. After all, it's important to savor them. Cut to Vito, driving through the neighborhood, pulls up alongside Satrial's, looks desolate, 
Must be before regular business hours. Nobody's there, so he speeds ahead. Perhaps looking for some other signs of life. Or some kind of olive branch he can climb onto. The rattle of his car is a nice touch. Made me wonder, of course, how he didn't get stopped. No fix-it ticket. Nothing. Cut to Finn watching football. The CFL, of all things, seems anxious. Meadow comes over, hands him a drink. Bobby's there. Barb and Tom, too. Sunday dinner. Carm's making cavatelle. Sounds like Italian for cavities. And that's what they are. Little hollow shells. Chris's wife, Kelly, comes in, but she came solo. Says Chris went to an AA meeting. Allegedly. Cut to tea in the basement, presiding over his wine bottles. This is, of course, too good. Right after Kelly said Chris was at a meeting, no doubt catalyzed by his trip to Pennsylvania with Tony and their moment of wine-induced stupor together. Jan comes down to talk to him. She takes a deep breath, pauses, gathers herself. Remember, Jan is all about Jan, has to make sure the spotlight's shining on her. She figures out a way, on the spot it seems, to thank him, or some version of a thank you. He says, you're welcome, and she breaks down. Of course, he can't handle it, as usual. The way he blinks as she creams herself over it, to quote him from therapy. He could almost have a panic attack right there. But saving them both in that moment, Carm comes down, sees Jan crying, <laughs> runs to her. Jan. No one knows what goes on in my head. What's the matter? What happened? Said in the most cry-for-help way you possibly can. Carm asks, what's the matter? What happened? Remember, like he said earlier to Med, Carm's good at this stuff. Best fucking response. She's happy. This, while he reorganizes bottles. Carm helps her upstairs as we fade to black on Let It Rock by Chuck Berry. A song about trains and railroads. A song about the regularness of life. Tony stays, lingers, fidgets, listens, replays in his mind, sees all the permutations. Another fork in the road, two episodes from the finale. Another thing nipped in the bud. But still, miles to go before we sleep. Miles to go before he sleeps. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time.